Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, a Radio Free Mormon Christmas. Well, it's that time of year again. And in Salt Lake City, the Christmas lights are up on Temple Square. The First Presidency Christmas devotional is in the can. And at the church office building, $100 billion stockings are hung by the fire with care. I thought it might be fun tonight to briefly review some of the experiences that I have had in Christmases past. But before I get to Christmases past, I want to talk a little bit about Christmas present. Here at Radio Free Mormon, I received a package the other day from an anonymous source. It arrived in a cardboard tube with no return address. Upon opening it, I found that it contained not one, not two, but four posters. These are beautiful Star Trek posters. And I've checked around with family and friends to see if I could figure out who it was who sent it to me. And none of the usual suspects will cop to it. So I am left to conclude that it must have come from one of my listeners to the Radio Free Mormon podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank you, whoever it is, out there in my ever-expanding audience who sent me these Star Trek posters. They are beautiful. They made my day. They are now adorning my wall, and I want to give you a very special thank you for this wonderful Christmas present. I also want to thank all of you who have been so kind as to make donations to the Radio Free Mormon podcast. It's your donations that keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. If you have not yet made a donation or feel inspired or moved by the Spirit to make another donation, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org and make that donation today. You can make a one-time donation or you can make recurring donations. $5 a month, $10 a month, $25 a month, whatever you can afford. We here at Radio Free Mormon appreciate your support. Turning now from Christmas present to Christmas past, when I grew up as a kid, I loved Christmas more than anything else in the world. I probably wasn't the only kid who felt that way. Now, you may have heard me say before that actually my favorite holiday was Halloween. And in some sense, that's correct. As soon as October came onto the calendar, I was all about Halloween, and Halloween was my favorite holiday, at least until Christmas rolled around. And then Christmas became my favorite holiday. As soon as the calendar turned to December, I began to feel that rush of Christmas spirit, that incredible excitement and anticipation that only a child can understand. And if you experience this kind of Christmas spirit and excitement, you will understand what I'm talking about. I've thought a lot about this and how could I possibly describe this amazing feeling? And I am unable to come up with words that will do it justice. I just want to clarify that this Christmas spirit and excitement and anticipation has nothing to do with the presence that I would be getting or looking forward to getting on Christmas Day. That was the smallest part of this Christmas spirit. It was all about the magic in the air, the expectant arrival of Santa Claus. Not what he would bring me, but that such a being actually existed and was even at the beginning of December working hard at the North Pole with his elves in order to fly all around the world on Christmas Eve and bring presents to good girls and boys. That magic culminated on Christmas Eve and began to dissipate quickly as soon as Christmas Day arrived. From my point of view, the presents themselves were actually sort of a lovely parting gift as that Christmas spirit began to diminish. And my excitement was so great leading up to Christmas that for at least a week after Christmas, I was prostrate with sadness and disappointment. 
I had the post-Christmas blues, worse than any kid you could imagine. And all I knew was that it would be a whole year before I would be able to experience it again. I remember once when I was six years old on Christmas Eve. This is when we lived in Waco, Texas. We lived in a two-story house. My bedroom, as well as the other bedrooms for the other members of the family, was on the second floor. We had been sent to bed by our parents with strict instructions that we needed to stay in bed because Santa Claus would be coming. And if you get out of bed and you try and see Santa Claus when he's there, bad things happen like Santa Claus gets wind of it. He leaves in a hurry without the chance to leave the presents under the Christmas tree. So this is one rule I strictly followed. I remember that Christmas Eve lying awake in bed with my brother Cam, filled with excitement, knowing that any minute Santa Claus would arrive. And I remember distinctly hearing outside of my second story window the crack of a whip in the still and frosty December night. I knew at that point that Santa Claus had flown by the window in his sleigh and cracked his whip over the heads of all of his reindeer. Now, I didn't actually see Santa Claus. All I heard was the crack of the whip, but my imagination filled in the rest. And I absolutely froze in bed. Not from fear of Santa Claus, but from fear of the fact that he would know that I was still awake. He knows if you've been sleeping, he knows if you're awake. And I do not know how long I remained frozen in bed like that before I finally fell asleep. But I've often reflected on that incident and wondered, was that a dream? Why is it that I could hear a whip crack outside my window on the second floor on Christmas Eve? It still makes very little sense to me. All I know is that at the time, it was very clear to me that this was no dream because I was wide awake when it happened and I was wide awake for at least a half an hour afterward before I could finally get myself to fall asleep. And I guess I did a good job at pretending I was asleep because Christmas morning, the presents were there. Santa had not been scared away by the fact that I was still awake upon his arrival. But every year I would feel this Christmas spirit from December 1st all the way up to Christmas Day. It was a wonderful part of my childhood. But I remember in 1971, I'm in sixth grade, I'm 11 years old, December 1st rolls around, and I'm expecting to feel what I've always felt, this incredible, wonderful Christmas spirit, but I don't feel anything. I feel normal, nothing special. December 2nd comes, the same thing. The 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th of December come, and I'm still not feeling any Christmas spirit. As Christmas Eve approaches, I'm beginning to feel desperate. What is going on? What is wrong with me? Why am I not feeling the Christmas spirit? It was not until Christmas Eve itself, at four o'clock in the afternoon, when I'm at home, watching TV, and I specifically remember watching the Brakeman Bill show. Brakeman Bill was a local celebrity who had his own show. It's called Brakeman Bill. And I remember watching the show, and I'm still very distraught that I have not felt any Christmas spirit. Here it is Christmas Eve. I'm going to go through the entire Christmas season without feeling the Christmas spirit. And it is at four o'clock the day before Christmas that I finally feel the Christmas spirit descend upon me again. And I was so excited to feel this Christmas spirit again, even though it was four o'clock on Christmas Eve. I knew I would not have long to enjoy it because Christmas Day was the following day. I had missed all the days leading up to Christmas in December, but at least I finally had it again. And I reveled in it for the few hours that were left in the Christmas season. Although I did not know it at the time, in retrospect, that was the last time that I would feel the Christmas spirit as a child or as an adult for that matter. And every year following that, in 1972, 73, 74, 75, 76, 77, December would roll around and I would once again be desperate to feel 
the Christmas spirit, but it wasn't there anymore. And Christmas became no longer a time of delight, but a time of despondency. I wanted to feel that Christmas spirit back again so much, and yet it was gone forever. Now, as listeners to this program know, I was baptized into the LDS Church in the summer of 1978, fresh out of high school. And as Christmas time of 1978 rolled around, I was certain that this was the answer to my Christmas spirit problem. Now that I was in the Lord's true church, now that I understood the true meaning of Christmas, surely I would feel the Christmas spirit again. Well, Christmas time rolled around and nothing. Nope, no Christmas spirit for Radio Free Mormon. All through December, no Christmas spirit. There was no special magic in being a Mormon that allowed me to regain that Christmas spirit. I remember being very disappointed by this realization. And in some sense, it was similar to the disappointment that I received in October of 1978 when I watched my first general conference. I had been baptized that summer. General conference was approaching. I was hearing from everybody how wonderful general conference was, what a spiritual feast it was, that we got to sit and listen to the words of prophets, seers, and revelators, including the prophet with a capital T and a capital P, whose name at the time was Spencer W. Kimball. And I anxiously looked forward to that experience But when I was finally listening to General Conference for the first time, I had to admit, if not to others, at least to myself, that this was a very boring experience. It seemed more like a corporate board meeting than an outpouring of the Spirit. Even though I would not have known what a corporate board meeting was at the time, I knew that it was anything but exciting. And this immediately began to set up in my mind the cognitive dissonance that would dog me throughout my membership in the LDS Church. Everybody else is saying how wonderful General Conference is. Everybody else is saying how great it is to hear the words of prophets who live upon the earth today. But I'm not feeling it. I'm not getting that vibe. But they are. So there must be something wrong with me. And the one thing that I cannot do and should not do and must never do is share the reality of my experience that it's boring with the other people who are saying how great it is. So my first disappointment with Mormonism was the very first general conference I attended, or at least watched on TV, in October of 1978. And my second major disappointment with Mormonism was the fact that I felt no Christmas spirit in December of 1978. This quest for returning to my childhood and reliving that childhood Christmas spirit went on for a number of years after that. I am, if nothing else, tenacious. I'm not stubborn. I'm tenacious. Stubbornness is a vice. Tenacity is a virtue. But at some point, I finally realized that this was kind of fruitless and it wasn't helping me at all. And if anything, it was just making me miserable. And so I finally decided just to allow Christmas to be what Christmas was and to enjoy it for what it was and not to try and force it to be something that it wasn't, but that it had been when I was a child. And after I made that decision, Christmas and I have gotten along much better over the years. I remember that when I was 12 or 13 years old, this was a couple of years after I had lost the Christmas spirit, that when Christmas time rolled around, I decided to turn my attention to the religious aspects of Christmas. Now, my family was not religious at all. We were never taken to church as children, except for one time on Easter in 1968. That was the only time that we were ever taken to church as children. And I still don't know why it was that on Easter of 1968, my parents decided to change everything they had ever done and take us three boys to church. This is when we lived in Longview, Texas. But other than that singular instance, we never went to church. We had no religious upbringing. So this was something that I did in and of myself. I turned my attention to the religious aspects of Christmas and the birth 
of Jesus. And I was aware by this point that there were two broad camps of Christmas songs. There were the secular songs, the fun songs, the We Are Santa's Elves songs, the Have a Holly Jolly Christmas songs, and then there were the more religious songs. O Come All Ye Faithful, Silent Night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, those kinds of songs. And I was able to locate the lyrics for these different songs, and I committed them to memory. And I would sing them, usually when no one else was around, but I would sing them and in that way commemorate what I was beginning to understand was the true and deeper meaning of Christmas. It was actually because I had committed these lyrics to memory before I was a member of the church that when I became a member of the church in 1978 and we began singing the Christmas songs out of the LDS hymnal in December of 1978, I quickly came to realize that there were some substantial differences between the LDS version of some of these Christmas songs and the versions I had learned when I was 12 or 13. A classic example of this is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If you turn to your LDS hymnal and look at Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you will find that there are only two verses of the song. The first verse starts, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The second verse starts, Hail the Heavenly Born Prince of Peace. And I remember singing that in the LDS church and immediately recognizing that something was missing. And what was missing was actually an entire verse. You see, when I memorized the same song when I was younger, there were three verses to it, not two. And what it appears happened is that the LDS church, when they decided to put this Christmas carol into their hymn book, took out the second verse in its entirety. And I expect the reason they did so was because of doctrinal reasons. Here's the second verse, which we never sing in the LDS church. And if you've grown up singing Christmas carols in the LDS church, this may be news to you. The second verse goes like this. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the favored one. Well, Brigham Young would have liked that verse, I think. It goes on, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Whoops, that might be problematic from a Mormon point of view. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So the entire Godhead is in Jesus. Mm, that's not going to work. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So it appears that somewhere along the way, the decision was made that Hark the herald angels sing was only going to have two verses, the first verse and the third verse, and the second verse would be omitted in its entirety. Perhaps they did not have room for all three verses in the LDS hymnal because they were busy making room for all seven verses of a poor wayfaring man of grief. I think there are a few other examples of that, but that's the most obvious example and the one that I remember. Recently, at the Christmas devotional held December 8, 2019, an address was given by Sister Joy Jones, the primary general president. She opened her address with a story told about her husband, who, when he was a boy, had a humorous incident involving himself, his two sisters, and peeking into Christmas presents before Christmas. And when her husband, as a child, opened up his Christmas present to look inside and see what it was he would be getting for Christmas, what he found was a note from his mother saying, I know what you're doing. This was a humorous story meant to introduce Sister Joan's talk, but when I thought about that story, it reminded me of a similar, though somewhat more macabre story that happened to me when I was 14 years old. I had never before this tried to look or peek at Christmas presents before Christmas, and I never once did so afterward either, and when you hear the story, I think you'll understand why that is. We had just moved in to a new house in September. December rolled around, 
and I am alone at home. My dad's at work. My mom is somewhere else. I don't know where my brothers are. All I remember is that there's nobody else in the house, and I've got time on my hands, and idle hands are the devil's plaything. So I decided I would go and try and find Christmas presents. By this time, by the way, spoiler alert, if there are any small children in the room, please take them out of the room right now before you listen to the next part. Okay, I'll give you a second to do that. Okay, are the kids out? Okay, then I'll go on. By this time, I have figured out that there really was no Santa Claus and that my parents were the ones who got the presents and put them under the tree and wrote on the Christmas tag from Santa. So I knew the most likely location for any Christmas presents would be hidden in my parents' bedroom, a place I never went. But this day, no one was home, and I remember sneaking into their room and looking under the bed. There was nothing there. Looking in the closet, there was nothing there. I turned my attention to their large chest of drawers. I went through the top drawer, nothing there. I went through the second drawer, nothing there. I opened the third drawer on the bottom and began rummaging through my mother's bras and panties. I was not interested in my mother's bras and panties. Let me repeat that. I was not interested in my mother's bras and panties. So I dug through the bras and panties and underneath them, I didn't find a present, but I did find a manila folder. I took the folder out and I opened it up and inside I found some documents. So picture in your mind Radio Free Mormon alone at home when he's 14 years old finding some documents in his parents' bedroom, opening them up, looking at them, and reading that his mother, my mother, had been committed to a mental institution two years before I was born because she attempted to commit suicide by slitting her wrists with razor blades. Now, I want you to know that my mom passed away on October 10th of the year 2000. My dad passed away on March 9th of 2011. It is very unlikely that you will know who they are. And if you did, I'm not sure it would matter that much anymore to them anyway. But that discovery in December of 1974 was quite a shock to my system. That was not what I had been expecting to find hidden in my parents' room. And I sure as hell never went around sneaking in my parents' room looking for Christmas presents again. And I remember for some time after that not being able to look at my mom in quite the same way. And every now and then I would try and get a glance at my mother's wrists. And when I did, I could see the distinct though faint tracings of delicate scars across the inside of each one of those wrists. So delicate that I never would have noticed them if I had not known what they were and where to look for them. Okay, that's a downer. Let me fast forward now to the Missionary Training Center. I was baptized in June of 1978. I entered the Missionary Training Center on November 14th of 1979. I would be there for two months, the entire holiday season. I was there for Thanksgiving of 1979. I was there for Christmas of 1979. And I was there for New Year's Eve of 1979. I remember that on Thanksgiving, as well as on Christmas, there were special movies that were shown. And this was in the big hall that they had at the MTC. I only found out recently that the MTC had actually been constructed only a year or two before 1979. So it was a pretty brand new facility 
when I was there. But there was a large meeting room in the MTC that could pack in pretty much all the missionaries. And the powers that be hauled out a big old projector, stuck it in the middle of the room. The rest of the room was filled up with rows and rows of metal folding chairs for the missionaries to sit on. And movies were shown from this projector up on a big screen in front of the room. I can still remember that there were two movies that were shown on Thanksgiving and there were two different movies that were shown on Christmas Day. I think I watched pretty much all of them. The two movies on Thanksgiving were The Slipper and the Rose, which I had never seen before, and Oliver. And the two movies on Christmas Day were It's a Wonderful Life, which, believe it or not, I had never seen before that time, and Barabbas, starring Anthony Quinn. My two months at the MTC were extremely busy. I certainly learned how to work at the MTC. I know that my dad had been concerned when I was a teenager about my seeming unwillingness and lack of interest in working. He would sometimes remark to his friends that his son, Radio Free Mormon, was not afraid of work, that actually he could lie down beside it and go to sleep. And while there may have been some truth to that remark, I definitely learned how to work at the MTC. We were in bed by 10.30, or at least that was the rule. We were supposed to be in bed at 10.30 and up by 6.30. I and the rest of the members of my district were housed on the third floor of the Dan Jones building. Each of the buildings was named for a famous missionary in the LDS church. My building was named for Dan Jones, the famous missionary to Wales. That would be the country, not the mammal. And the first thing we did upon getting up was we went to the gym for the daily PE class. Different districts would have gym class throughout the day. We had it first off, and I kind of liked it better that way. It definitely got my blood pumping, and when we were done with PE, we would go back to the Dan Jones building, we would shower up, we'd get dressed, then we'd head out for breakfast before we started going to class. And classes went for about three hours in the morning, then break for lunch, then about three or four more hours in the afternoon, then break for dinner, then three more hours in the evening, and then we'd head back, get ready for bed, and then we're supposed to be in bed by 10.30 and repeat the cycle all over again. I remember a couple of things about gym class. The gym teacher had a very interesting set of calisthenics that he had everybody do. This is how we began every gym class, and it was 15 minutes of calisthenics. Now, 15 minutes is not a terribly long time, but what he managed to do was come up with a system that was absolute torture. (laughs) It was absolute torture during this 15 minutes, and he had 15 different kinds of calisthenics that we did during these 15 minutes, one different kind for every minute. And there would be jumping jacks. Those were the easy ones, right? There would be burpees. Those were much harder. There were push-ups, three different kinds. There were sit-ups, three different kinds of sit-ups. And so there were a total of 15 different kinds of these calisthenics. And the idea was that he'd blow the whistle. You would do the particular calisthenic as hard as you could for 10 seconds. Then you'd rest for 10 seconds. Then you'd do the same one as hard as you could for 10 seconds. And then you'd rest for 10 more seconds. And then you'd do the same one as hard as you could for 10 seconds. And then you'd rest for 10 more seconds. That was the end of one minute. That was the end of one set of calisthenics. Then you went to the second set of calisthenics and you repeated the process as hard as you could for 10 seconds, rest for 10 seconds, and so on, until you'd gone through all 15 sets of calisthenics for 15 minutes. After calisthenics, we ran laps around the inside of the gym. Now, I was there in Thanksgiving and December and into January of the year when it was extremely cold outside. I don't know if they ran outside during the warmer months. I hope they did. But what we did was we ran around the inside of the gym, laps around the inside of the gym. And up on the wall, on large pieces of poster board, were lists that were written. I remember there was a list that was written of the original 
apostles. There's Peter, James, John, blah, 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 all the way down to number 12. There was another list of the current apostles with Bruce R. McConkie and LeGrand Richards and Marky e. Peterson and Boyd K. Packer. I think he was one of the newer kids on the block at the time. And then there would be another list with the books of the New Testament, another list with the books of the Book of Mormon, and so forth. And those were posted up on the wall where everybody could see them. They were written in big letters. And the idea was this, is that a particular list was picked for every day. And what we would do was run around the gym until we had memorized all the names on the particular list for that day. And we had to keep running and running and running until we had them memorized. And then when we had them memorized, we would go to the coach, we would pass them off. If we didn't pass them off, then you had to keep running until you could. But ultimately, you would run to the coach, you would pass them off, and once you've done that, then you could play volleyball for the rest of the period. That was PE class at the MTC. Our living arrangements at the MTC were quite simple and spartan. We lived in dorm rooms, and basically we were only in our dorm rooms at night to sleep. There were four missionaries in every dorm room, two sets of bunk beds, and four desks. I mentioned before in my interview with John DeLynn that I had been studying dance for three years prior to going to the MTC. I was absolutely in love with dancing, and I expect that I was the only missionary before or since who had a big black and white poster of Mikhail Baryshnikov taped up on the wall of his dorm room at the MTC. I have no idea how I got away with that or if such a thing would even be allowed today. I'm kind of doubting it. Posters of Jesus, okay. Posters of ballet dancers, probably not so much. One other thing that I got away with that I'm kind of surprised about in retrospect had to do with the name tags that every missionary wore at the MTC. Now, back in those days, you didn't get the nice name tags as soon as you got to the MTC. Now, when we think of Mormon missionary name tags, the image that comes to mind is of the black name tag with the white lettering. They're very nice. They're hard plastic. They're made so that they can slip on over the breast pocket of your jacket. Or if you're not wearing a jacket, they slip on over your shirt pocket. And when we got to Japan, we did get those kind of name tags. But at the MTC, it was a different story. At the MTC, all the missionaries wore a different kind of name tag than that. What they had was a piece of thin, narrow, white plastic with a pin on the back. And so you would actually pin it onto your jacket or pin it onto your shirt. If you're a sister missionary, you obviously pin it onto your dress. Now these white pieces of plastic did not have a name on them. They were blank. And what they would do was at the front counter of the MTC, there were people who worked there. They were young people. They were probably BYU students, though I didn't know it at the time. But they worked there. They manned the station. They were there pretty much 24-7, I think, in case emergencies arose. And on these white pieces of plastic that were pinned to the front of my jacket, there was a strip with my name on it. Every missionary got a strip with their name on it, and these were made at the front desk with a label maker. Yes, this is 1979. This is the age of label makers. So the people at the front desk would take a label maker, and they would make the names, and when you got there, you had your name created on a label maker. And the label maker is a handheld device that you run a strip of plastic through. You use it to punch letters into the piece of plastic. Once you get it through the label maker, you cut it off. It's sticky on the back. So you take the label with your name on it, you stick it on the white plastic pin, and you are ready to go. And if your name is Smith, then you have not Elder Smith, you have E. Smith. 
If your name is Jones, you don't have Elder Jones, you have E. Jones. And if you're a sister, it's S. Smith or S. Jones, as the case may be. Those were the labels that every missionary wore at the MTC. So basically, it was a simple matter if you lost your name tag that you could go to the front desk, you could get another one of these cheap pieces of plastic with a pin on the back, and the person at the front counter then would pull out the label maker and punch out a new name tag for you and you were good to go again. Well, when I was in high school, there were a number of TV shows that I liked, but none I liked more than Starsky and Hutch. It was a detective show. It was about a couple of cool detectives in LA and Starsky was the guy who I liked the most. He had the fiery red Gran Torino and they would drive around in that car and they would fight crime in LA. So at one point I got this crazy idea and I thought I would give it a go and my companion, Elder Weaver, was on board with this idea. So we went up to the front desk one evening, probably right after dinner and before class started. As I say, there wasn't a lot of free time at the MTC. And we went up there, we'd taken off our tags, and we went up there and I started talking to the guy behind the counter. And I told the guy behind the counter that unfortunately, both myself and my companion had managed to lose our name tags and we needed him to make new ones for us. Now there are literally hundreds if not thousands of people at the MTC at this time, thousands of missionaries. The guy behind the counter has no idea who I am. He has no idea who my companion is. So he asked me, what is your name? And he's actually spelling it out on the label maker as he's asking me. And I don't give him the name at first. Instead, I say, I'll spell it out because it's kind of hard to spell. And I start spelling S-T-A-R as he's making each letter in the label maker. And finally, we get to the end and he looks at me and says, Starsky, huh? And I say, yeah, it's kind of unusual. I get a lot of fun made of my name, but that's really it. So the guy finishes the label, pulls it out, tears off the adhesive, sticks it on the back of the white name tag, and now I am officially Elder Starsky. And I said, and my friend lost his too. I think I probably waited to that point to reveal the amazingly coincidental fact that my friend, my companion, had lost his name tag as well. And the guy behind the counter gets a wry smile and he says, let me guess, his name's Hutch. And I said, no, actually, it's Hutchinson. <laughs> I said, no, actually, it's Hutchinson, because that was the full name of Hutch. It was Starsky and Hutch, but Hutch's real last name was Hutchinson. And he goes, oh, and I said, yeah, it's a coincidence. Yeah, we get a lot of ribbing about it. But he plays along. He's a good guy. So he prints out Elder or E. Hutchinson. So now we've got Elder Starsky and Elder Hutchinson. And we're walking around the MTC like we own the place because we are the coolest guys at the MTC. And I remember not long after that, that the idea seemed to have caught on because as we're walking down the hallways at the MTC, I start seeing different missionary companions walking by with odd name tags. I remember seeing Elder Ranger and Elder Tonto on one occasion. <laughs> and even more amazingly, I saw a different missionary companion with the names Elder Robin and Elder Batman. It's beginning to look like we've started something of a fad. Well, at some point, I think too many people were doing it. It became too obvious. The powers that be got wind of it and the whole escapade got shut down. But it was fun while it lasted. And the reason I'm telling you all this is to lead up to this story, which happened at the MTC. Now, at the MTC, I'm not just studying Japanese, though that seemed to be the majority of what it was that was going on, is study Japanese, morning, afternoon, night. But there were a number of spiritual presentations that were given, religious talks. They would farm in general authorities to come in and speak to us on occasion. The MTC president would speak to us from time to time. I think his name was Christensen when I was there. This was before Joseph Bishop became the MTC president. And every Sunday evening, there would be a devotional where all the missionaries at the MTC would troop out of the MTC and over to the Wilkinson Center on the BYU campus. We would all sit in a special section devoted to the missionaries, and then we would listen to a general authority give a devotional of some sort. 
at the Wilkinson Center. Now, I've mentioned before that I had a remarkable experience reading and praying my way through the Book of Mormon when I was 18 years old. Through that experience, I had come to conclude that the Spirit had witnessed to me that the Book of Mormon was word for word the Word of God. Every word in it was true. And certainly from that, I could extrapolate that the things that were taught in the Book of Mormon, including the divinity of Jesus Christ and his sonship and his being the redeemer of the world, were also true. But for some reason, not long after I got to the MTC, I began to desire a special witness of Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't put it in those terms. I wasn't thinking I want to be like an apostle or a 70 or anything, but I wanted a special independent witness, a spiritual witness of the divinity of Jesus Christ, in addition to my testimony of the Book of Mormon. And by this time, I had become acquainted with the account in the Book of Mormon of Enos. Poor Enos, that's a bad name. I'm sure he got a lot of fun made of his name back when he was in high school. But Enos is a character in the Book of Mormon. He's known for the one story that's told about him in the Book of Mormon. And that's where he goes out and he prays to God all night long until God finally answers his prayer. But his praying all night long is a sign of his devotion, his dedication, and the fact that ultimately he does prevail upon God to get an answer to his prayer. And I decide that I want this answer to my prayer, this witness of the divinity of Jesus Christ, so much that I'm willing to pull an all-nighter. I'm willing to pull an Enos on this one. So I wait till everybody's gone to bed. It's 1030 at night. Everybody in my room is asleep. Everybody on the floor is asleep. Everybody throughout the MTC is asleep. It's 1030. So I wait for everybody to go to sleep and then I leave the room and I go over to the shower room where they have the bathrooms and the showers and everything. And of course, there's tile on the floor. There's tile on the walls. And I decide that that is where I'm going to kneel down and I'm going to pray to the Lord all night long if necessary in order to get this divine witness. Well, I kneel down on the tile floor and I begin to offer up the desires of my heart to God. And I am praying for this divine witness and nothing is coming. And one minute goes by and nothing's coming. And five minutes goes by and nothing's coming. And I start becoming acutely aware of the fact that kneeling on hard tile is probably different for Radio Free Mormon at the MTC than kneeling on the soft forest floor was for Enos in the Book of Mormon. I may have given it 10, possibly 15 minutes, but I rapidly realized that there was no way I was going to be able to stay kneeling on this cold, hard tile floor all night long, even to get the desires of my heart. And so I go to plan B and plan B is, okay, look, I'm not going to pray all night long, but I'll make it a matter of recurring prayer in my room when I wake up in the morning and when I go to bed at night, I will ask for this then in my normal three to five minute prayer. So that's what I did. And I made a habit of praying for this every day at the MTC. And nothing happened while I was praying at the MTC, but I continued to pray for this witness. Now it's the Sunday before Christmas and all the missionaries are lining up and trooping over to the Wilkinson Center for the weekly devotional on Sunday evening. All the missionaries are seated. The BYU students are coming in. They're being seated too. And before the program begins, there is somebody down on the main floor who is leading everybody who's present in the singing of Christmas carols. There must have been some musical accompaniment too. Maybe there wasn't. But what I remember is that the first song that was going to be sung by everybody present was Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The person conducting announces a song. Everybody knows the words. Everybody knows the music. And we begin to sing the song. Now, I wasn't expecting anything to happen except we were all going to sing the song together, which I knew by heart and knew the fact that the version that we were going to be singing was missing the middle verse. But as we began to sing that, the most remarkable thing happened. And the only way I can describe this 
is that it was like the Spirit of God was up there on the ceiling. And as we began to sing these words, it came down slowly upon me. And I had the impression that it would have been coming down upon everybody else. It was that big. But it rested upon me in great power. And I felt that it was testifying to me that every word that we were singing was indeed true. If you've ever seen these political conventions where at the end, when finally they've got their nominee selected, that they have all these balloons up in the ceiling in a net, and they cut the net, and the net falls, and all the balloons come slowly falling down upon the audience, that was the exact same kind of image that I had in my mind as what was happening. And my interpretation of that experience is that my prayer, which I had been making regularly, to have a special witness of the divinity of Jesus Christ was answered in this experience and that the Spirit was witnessing to me that every word in that song was absolutely true. And what are the words to that song? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. This was the answer to my prayer. This is one of the many wonderful spiritual experiences that I have had in my lifetime. And it occurred at Christmas time at the MTC. By the way, 40 years ago, this very season, I was at the MTC. I'm recording this on December 20th, 2019. And this happened in December of 1979. I just checked a calendar for 1979. The Sunday before Christmas was December 23rd. So it would have been on the evening of December 23rd, 1979 that occurred this experience I have just described to you. Now there are a couple of reasons I wanted to share this experience with you. One of which is because it's Christmas and it's appropriate to share this experience on Christmas. The second reason has to do with what's going to end up being part two of this podcast. I've talked about a number of my spiritual experiences now. I've talked about my experience with the Book of Mormon. I've talked about my experience on my mission and my interview with John DeLynn, where I heard the voice of the Lord directing me to a specific person to contact. I'm now sharing this experience that I had with you at the MTC during Christmas of 1979. And there are other wonderful experiences that I have had. And the question arises frequently, how is it that a person like you, Radio Free Mormon, who has had these kinds of spiritual experiences confirming to you the truth of the church and the reality of the Savior can end up now being where you are, where you no longer believe in the truth claims of the church and you've got a lot of doubts about the reality of Jesus being the Son of God? Even in my interview with John DeLynn, the seven-hour interview with John DeLynn, toward the beginning, he raised that question and said, we'll get to that later. But we never got around to it later because there was so much other stuff to talk about. And at least one person in the comments section to that interview raised that question and said that she was very interested in finding out what the answer to that question was for me. How do I reconcile my spiritual experiences with where I am today. And indeed, that question becomes all the more poignant when frequently, if people leave the church, the counsel they receive from church leaders is to recall the spiritual experiences they had when they were a member and therefore use that to try and get them back 
into the church? Well, I'm glad actually that John DeLynn did not get back to that question at the time because it's a complicated question to answer, but I've been giving it a lot of thought. Since my interview with John DeLynn, there's no doubt that I'm in a very different position than I was back when I had these spiritual experiences, but how is it that I came to this point? Why is it that I can have those spiritual experiences and not deny the truth of them or their actuality or that I actually did experience them and yet feel comfortable being where I am today? That is what I am going to go over in my next podcast. But in the meantime, I want to wish you and yours the very merriest of Christmases this holiday season. In the immortal words of Irving Berlin, may your days be merry and bright and may all your Christmases be white and delightsome. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.